0: Part 4 What did you do? Gandhi Naik quite literally came from the sewers of Bangladesh. Born right in the middle of his six siblings, the child entered this world throwing elbows to procure then safeguard his food. Through nothing short of a miracle, Naik managed to stay alive long enough to enter early adulthood, where with one more gift from God, he managed to scratch out a living as a custodian. The young man got his hands on a few cleaning tools and simply started going door to door to all the businesses in his little town offering the most competitive rates on full-service cleaning. In a few months' time, he racked up a list of regulars, but the one he looked forward to the most was the police station. Although nothing much to look at, especially by Baldwin Park standards, young Naik was fascinated by the persistent ringing of telephones, crackling of walkie-talkies, and of course the strong and imposing officers that carried their authoritative persons chest-first throughout the station. As Naik bleached the toilets and mopped the floors, He began to fantasize about strapping on a helmet and vest and running with his fellow officers to surround a thief, tactically move in, disarm him, then bring him to the floor as they strapped cuffs onto his grimy wrists. One day, after he finished his duties, he popped into the sergeant's office and inquired about the requirements to become a law officer. He was brushed off as an annoyance by the overwhelmed supervisor, and without much fanfare, Naik thought he should quickly abandon his silly dream, deciding it better to focus on something perhaps bigger for his life's path. However, Naik was not able to shake his desire to become a Leo so easily. In fact, it only grew more fervent. He found himself lingering around the station past his build hours, listening in to conversations, and trying his best to absorb as much of these officers as he could. As Naik covertly learned more about the police in the station, he realized another obstacle toward his pristine image of what being an officer would be like. A good chunk of the uniforms so openly discussed their corrupt activities that Naik didn't have to decipher any code, inquire to any of them personally, or even do anything remotely covert to uncover. In fact, if he wanted to avoid talk about shakedowns, extortion, and the like, he would have to take such extreme measures as literally plugging his ears. Disappointed and quite literally sick to his stomach, Yandi continued to clean the station, having no other choice as one of his regular clients. However, he now kept his head low and suffered through the experience. Naturally, he still heard the rumblings of the horrendous abuses of power, and though he tried not to let it get to him, he often had to take a moment out of his routine just to catch his breath and let his anger quill. Even with his, by all means, powerless status, Naik realized that he couldn't stay quiet for much longer. He certainly couldn't sacrifice the business, but perhaps there was something else he could do. Naik began paying closer attention to the operation of the police department, doing his best to digest names places, and various other details that would be of value to anyone on the other side of the equation. At the time, he was living in a cheap little home in the city, sharing a room with four other laborers. Being in one of the worst parts of the area, he frequently encountered criminals of all levels. The life of crime was a natural pathway for slum kids like Yandi, and to his dismay, he had a few pals who had gone down that route. Yet, now this was proving to be something of value. Naik sought out a childhood friend who had climbed up a local street gang's ladder and he told him that he had been working inside of a police station and had come up on some very valuable information in which his boss may be interested. He was brought into contact with a gang lord and he was honest in explaining how the police appeared by all means to be the real crooks in the neighborhood. With nearly absolute power, cops rained terror on the public and they answered to no one. Naik simply wanted in on some disruption. Over the course of the next few weeks, He would continue to spy on the operations while posing as a custodian, creating a funnel of tactical information to the gang. They were of course paying him for the privilege, so while he was working his own brand of street justice, he was also building up a nice little nest egg that was sure to get him out of the slums much quicker than his honest day's work. Everything was going perfectly for the young man, until it all came to a boil. To keep things short... He had informed the ganglord that the police were planning a raid on a local butcher shop that had not been paying its normal protection fee. The raid was planned for the middle of the night and was to be as quiet as necessary. The idea was to break in, crack the safe, and take whatever was owed, plus an indeterminate amount of interest for their troubles. If there was time, maybe the police would provide a little free interior redesigning as well. Naik told him what he knew and left it at that. What Naik was unaware of at the time was that there was some rather nasty politics that had developed recently between a very powerful criminal syndicate and the police. In short, a captain's brother had been killed by police in a clear assassination that occurred in broad daylight. Four cops rolled up to the man, began pushing him into the back alley, and after a loud pop, his brother was no more. This had been beyond the etiquette of turf tactics, so this mob boss was all in on a revenge attempt and Naik's info was exactly what he needed to quench that thirst. The ganglord sold Naik's information to the mob boss, and the next morning, the would-be cop would learn what his snooping had bequeathed. Word spread quickly, as it often does in poverty-stricken areas. Four officers had been chopped to pieces in a butcher shop the night before, apparently having been ambushed. Some hoodlums had snuck up on the cops and quite literally hacked them to bits with machetes, adding human cuts to the stock of pork, poultry, and the like. Naik stood shook as the horror was explained to him in excruciatingly explicit detail. Yet, before he could fully process what he had become a part of, he got a summons from the gang lord, who let him know that the syndicate was very much thankful for his information and his reward was to be paid immediately. Before he could claim that he wanted nothing to do with any reward, a duffel bag was presented to him. The middleman then informed him that if he could provide any more information, there'd be lots more duffel bags in his future. Nate sprinted home, got to his room, and got a quick peek at the contents of the bag, roughly the equivalent of 10,000 US dollars. He knew he had to get out of the city immediately, having now been essentially initiated into a crime family, and ironically enough, the same family had just given him the financial means to do so. The only question was to where, and what could he do when he got there? After inquiring around the streets, he found a neighbor that had a family connection with someone who lived in the little Bangladesh neighborhood in Los Angeles. Having no time to ask for details, Naik went right ahead and asked if he could find work and housing if he made that trek. He then booked his flight, packed his bags, and said goodbye to his home country, never to see it again. Naik managed to find his way as a dishwasher in an Indian restaurant in the city, taking long, crowded bus rides to and from the job site. Now a grown man, Yandi Naik only grew more ambitious, and living within a city as large and diverse as Los Angeles, he began to wonder what he could do to improve his situation. The extra shifts simply were not enough, and he was beginning to accrue debt. Through a cook in his restaurant, he had discovered that there were some openings for security officers for a bank located in the suburb of Baldwin Park. Although very much turned off from all things police, Nike saw the salary and the quick process of becoming certified, and he took the position, moving to the city that would become his home for the remainder of his life. It didn't take long for the allure of a rent-a-cop to give way to a much bigger and very familiar desire. Fortunately for Yandi Naik, the Baldwin Park Police Department was hiring, and the cops around here were much cleaner. What did you do? The booming voice of the lieutenant was almost unrecognizable with the cracks. He turned to Dilly, and with just a slight extension of his elbow, she was shoved back a good eight feet. What did you do? Nike immediately put an arm in front of Girardi to prevent any further interaction, and understandably ticked off Dilly responded, what are you talking about? I was in the house with you, and put your hands on me again, and I'll guarantee that it'll be the last time you use them outside of a jail cell. You're out of your mind, putting officers in the ground to put others in cuffs? What the hell is the matter with you? For a second, I thought maybe you were a good cop, but Jesus Christ, you're practically one of them. I'm not the one texting gang members all day, joking with them, hugging them. You're more comfortable in a more those living room than in your own police station. Gap cops never got shot at until you showed up. Bangers never even raised their voices to us. They were terrified. We commanded these streets. Ever since you showed up and word got out that we were being watched, every one of these animals got it in their head that they could do whatever they want. That's not on me. Your sloppy policing upset the balance and it's finally catching up to you. Detective Desarian realized she was getting nowhere with this emotion-saturated argument and turned away from Girardi and Naik, deciding to wait for the ambulance and backup units in isolation. Unfortunately, Johanson and Penley took the other car to sweep the streets for the trigger man so she had to remain within earshot of Girardi's continued tirade, vociferating about how it must not have been enough to take good cops off their beats and pack them into jail cells. Now the MAPD wanted them taken out completely. Dilly could not hold her composure any longer. She turned back to the lieutenant and began, I know you're not stupid enough to not know that my department doesn't even prosecute cases, and I'm giving you a lot more leeway than I give any cop because of the circumstances, but guess what? The FBI is going to take this case now, and you'll have maybe one more day on the squad if you're lucky. Do you understand that? A man under your command is dead. Your streets are going to break out into a war, and you won't even get the chance to fix any of it. And from what I've seen, that might be a good thing. Fortunately for all parties involved, the additional units arrived in time to stifle all animosity. Seeing her position become more outnumbered with Baldwin Park PD uniforms swarming the scene, Dilly broke from the epicenter. It would not be proper for her to completely abandon the scene as much as she might like, but she figured she could at least keep as much space between Girardi and herself as possible. With all due respect to the memory of Detective McGill, Dilly felt immensely stressed at what the murder meant to her case. She had just been within a hair of closing the investigation with a positive report that gave Girardi and his boys a clean rating. But with another body in the mix, and one of a decorated officer, the corruption case would clearly move in the opposite direction. The good news, if one could even justify using that positive descriptor, was that Dilly would be off the case in any circumstance. Agent Culver and the FBI would move in and request her notes, then put at least a few gap cops on leave and begin digging into all the dirty bits of their process. If it was any consolation, Dilly would not be denigrated for losing the case, nor for making any mistakes that sunk it. The MAPD and the Sheriff's Office would unite against the FBI and chalk it up to the same old story of big government interference. Yet, this was still not enough for Diliana Desarian. Nothing had changed since she had rode up into Baldwin Park a few days ago. There were still corrupt police units rampant, gang violence was only growing, two more people were dead. This would go down as a failure in her book. As a homicide detective approached her for her input on the situation, she thought to herself that there was something she must be able to do still. Of course, if there was indeed a contribution to be made. She knew very well that it would have to be done not only outside of her LASD authority, but also in direct opposition of Girardi, the entire BPPD, and of course the almighty FBI. Chief Dallas opened the door, unashamedly wearing her black sweatpants and faded white zombie tee. It was only a few hours after the murder of Detective McGill, and despite arriving to the site as soon as she could, coordinating various responsibilities and tasking Girardi with notifying Mrs. McGill, her head was still amidst a land of foggy disbelief. She tried not to harp on the details of how it was one of Girardi's men. It had happened while they were visiting a powerful gang lord in his own home. And how it was a cold-blooded blindside execution. How did it go, she asked Girardi as he entered her home and made his way to the backyard. Like shit, he responded as he took his seat outside. Chief followed him after making a stop at the fridge and bringing three cans with her to the table. She handed one to Gerardi, cracked hers, then cracked the third. The lieutenant looked at the lone can sitting in front of an empty seat, symbolic of their fallen brother. He wiped the straggling tears from his eyes and told Dallas that he was going to head to the station right now and start looking through his files so he'd be ready to shake down every CI he could to find some info on what the hell was going on. You don't have any leads? Even from the shooting at Lagos? No. No one's talking. Been getting resistance ever since the deputy showed up. Do you think she has something to do with that? She brought a black cloud with her. I swear to god, the day you told me she was coming, I find out that two of my CIs skipped town. Then she rolls in with her fancy challenger, and I'm on my way to pick up Verde, and I find out he's moving in on Garza. Now everyone's making moves, and they don't give a shit that we're cracking skulls to anyone who gets out of line. My guys won't talk. The Hefes are only giving me the bare minimum of their spare time. They even make me leave my gun with their security. He stopped for a moment, remembering the only way he could get his wish for Dilly to leave them alone. Is it true the FBI is coming in next? Chief Dallas answered bluntly that she wouldn't be surprised if a pair of Brooks Brothers' suits made their way into the station first thing tomorrow morning. What's that mean for me? Girardi offered quietly. Depending on what they have or what the sheriff's office gives them, you could be on leave immediately. Dallas leaned in, noting that her response was one that her lieutenant expected. I'll do all I can to get that pushed back, at least so you can work unofficially on, on the murder. If anyone could cast a trigger, man, it's you. But it might be out of my hands. I mean, I know you're gonna work the case whether you have your badge or not. Girardi took an extended swig to signal his agreement. Who's gonna head up the Gap unit? You tell me. You may have gotten sloppy, but the thing I've heard can point back to any of your detectives. That's why you're a good cop. You look out for your officers. Let's be real here. You probably won't ever get a promotion past this rank, not with this on your record. But any city that has you in their arsenal is going to be better for it. At least I have one person in charge that doesn't think I'm dirty, added Girardi as he killed his beer. Ardella's heaved a sigh as she decided it better not to follow that last sentence with a disclaimer. The fact was, Girardi was good police in her eyes. Excellent, in fact. So excellent that his creative tactics could be overlooked by her, even if the county and state courtrooms felt differently. "'Laws were laws, and it would be incredibly hypocritical "'of her to act like her officers breaking them "'meant less than the various criminals doing the same. "'Good intentions don't mean much in the real world.'" Ardalis offered to make Girardi some coffee before sending him on his way to get as much of a jump as possible in tracking down the cop killer before he would be asked to turn in his gun and badge. As the hot water percolated, she tortured herself with the horrifying thought of a station without her all-star while a gang more raged in her streets and a good chunk of her squad would favor finding McGill's killer over protecting BP's citizens. If there was ever a time to retire, this might be it. Why not leave the chaos to one of her hungry deputy chiefs? Perhaps it would even be poetic that Girardi's and her career end simultaneously, since they kicked off together. Her lesser side wondered what else the city wanted from her, but her higher and much louder side believed that whatever that may be, she still had a duty to provide it. The Municipal Authority Preservation Division was based inside the Crescenta Valley Sheriff's Station, a bit of a ways northwest from the Baldwin Park Police Station. Detective Desarian pulled her challenger into the parking lot, grabbed her briefcase, and headed toward the door. The comfort of her own agency was welcome at such a trying time in the case. Simple hellos, smiles, and head nods from her fellow deputies eased her immensely, especially under the knowledge that she had a meeting with both her sergeant and captain in little under an hour. It was common practice to be placed on leave after being involved in a shooting, especially one that resulted in a murder. And the only reason she was spared from the Trece incident was because she was getting so close to making her case, and her sergeant felt that the circumstances were not too impactful on her policing. Not only was this incident another degree of intensity, but Dilly knew that it was probably the last time anyone in her division would refer to the Baldwin Park PD Gap Unit as her case. She walked into her office, placed down her files and began looking over the details, with the reality of being pulled up the investigation looming mercilessly overhead. Captain Eric Moore called both Dilly and Sergeant Fuentes into his office around 1100. Fuentes caught Desarian's attention from across the room as they both made their way to the rendezvous point, showcasing her soft eyes that sought to let her best detective know that she did all she could, but to be ready to remain professional and execute her supervisor's orders. The women entered the office, and after accepting the captain's offered seats, he began. Detective, I've read your report on last night's shooting, and I'm a little confused. In fact, it sounds like you are too. You claimed that all the Gap cops were in the house with you, and you didn't find Detective McGill's body until after the business was concluded. Then you said that you heard footsteps running away. Does that mean you didn't hear any shots? The gunman must have used a suppressor because we heard nothing until the footsteps... I could still smell the gunpowder, so I'm pretty sure the person fleeing was the killer. We just missed him. I'm thinking that he had a lookout, and when he saw us exiting the house, he gave the signal and the weapon was fired. You said there were bullet wounds through the skull, as if he had been shot point blank through the driver's side, is that correct? Yes, it was a clear execution. Nothing left to chance. Captain Moore removed his glasses and placed the report down. What the hell is going on in Bowman Park? Sergeant Fuentes tells me that you gathered enough intel to conduct an interrogation of Lieutenant Girardi and his main guys, Detectives Naik and McGill, but you wasted an entire day chasing them down to talk? Then when you do get their attention, instead of completing your interrogation, you go on a little field trip, hitting up all the ganglords in the city, and now there's an officer in the morgue. Yet, in your report... You claim that Girardi has shown no evidence of corruption warranting a formal investigation as of yet. Do you know what this sounds like to me, Detective? No, sir. I'm not sure. Two things. I'm going with the former because I know your work is usually excellent. What I will choose to believe is that the gap unit of the BPPD is one of the most coordinated corrupt divisions in L.A. County. A clique so advanced that they have been running countless nefarious activities throughout their jurisdictions. They have such a powerful hold over their turf that even one of my best detectives found them too much to handle and has been running around in circles while they continue their reign of terror, even having the gall to claim that she's found nothing wrong so far. Despite dying to jump in at several points in his rather harsh assessment, Dilley decided it better to keep her mouth shut and let him finish his blasphemous tirade. Are you at all curious to know the conclusion that I refused to believe, despite there being some rather convincing evidence?" After a light nod, he picked up. I may have been inclined to believe that the Detective Sergeant actually made contact with Lt. Girardi on that first day. They secured an interrogation room, and him being the smooth talker that he is, he began leading her with his own more senior techniques. This was successful enough that she began to follow the line that there was no wrongdoing in the Gap Unit, or at the very least it was wrongdoing that paled in comparison to the greater good. She then spent the following days goofing off with the boys, excited to be a part of the badasses that make up the gang cops, and she got caught on her heels, forgot her assignment entirely, and before she could blink she was getting shot at and an officer turned up dead. Sergeant Fuentes steadied her nerves as best as she could, fighting the urge to look over and take in Dilly's reaction. She could only hope she could continue to keep quiet in the face of such aggressive, albeit veiled, accusations. Fortunately for me, I can confirm this is an exercise in overthinking, Captain Moore continued. MAPD officers are known across the county for their integrity, and though they may still be human and prone to err, at least every once in a while, they conduct their work with the utmost honesty and professionalism. However... The fact remains that your work on the case has been error-ridden. Considered a compliment that this strikes me as out of character for you, Detective Sergeant." Captain, working with Lieutenant Girardi," Dilly added before being interrupted, "...you are not working with Girardi. You're investigating him. By everything I'm seeing, this should have been a slam-dunk case." I'll let you in on something, since candor seems to be the theme of this meeting. I thought you might just be able to make this case before we handed any information off to another agency. I felt you would make the appropriate arrest yourself, which of course would have been a feather in the cap of this division to say the least. I'm sure you can imagine what that would have done for your career. Instead, I have FBI agents clogging up my telephone lines about how they're ready to move in and complete the job. So I'm off the case, she offered, just slightly flirting with insubordination. From what I understand, an agent Culver might make contact with Chief R. Dallas as early as this afternoon. It's completely in his hands as to whether or not he takes the case from us. Based on your performance thus far, I couldn't even raise an honest objection if I wanted. Captain, am I to understand that I'm still working the gap unit? She inquired, looking over to her sergeant to be sure she was hearing correctly. Detective, until either Sergeant Fuentes, Special Agent Culver, or myself instruct you otherwise, you are to continue investigating Lieutenant Girardi and the Gap Unit. I suggest you work quickly, because the vultures are circling. Yes, sir. If I may, there are a ton of intangibles with regard to the Gap Unit, and if we're talking about justice, as in serving criminals with... Detective, the vultures are circling. The point was made clear, and Dilly nodded her understanding. She stood from her seat, thanked the captain for his time, bid adieu to her sergeant, and scurried out to get back to work while she still had the case. Back at the Baldwin Park Police Station, the mood was as somber as one might expect. Though the city still needed their department to police its streets, there were not much chatter among the officers and administrators, and the dark cloud of Detective McGill's death hung heavy among his peers. Police aide Gabriel Lamelli appeared to be taking it harder than anyone, as he sat at his front desk, eyes sunk and gaze glazed. To be fair, he also spent nearly all night typing up reports for the Gap officers, most of which needed a heavy creative hand since the detectives were rather sparse in their summaries to him. Nonetheless, Gabe took his duties with pride and was happy to say that all the proper paperwork had been filed despite the cavalcade of distractions that had threatened their completion. Imagine his surprise when he received an official email from Detective Desarian requesting case files for Puro 626 leader Victor Garza and his associates. Like his precious Gap Cops, Gabe's resentment for the LASD investigator had only deepened after the death of McGill. Prone to emotional reactions, Gabe too put his death at least partially at her doorstep, and thus he was in no rush to help the outsider. On top of this, he did not forget that to his knowledge she was still investigating Girardi and the BPPD, so it came as rather shocking and disrespectful that she would ask him for information that she was sure to use against his people. Needless to say, Gabe was not going to comply with the deputy, even if that meant he would be placed on a shortlist for obstruction of justice. He was loyal to Baldwin Park and its heroic police officers. There was nothing they needed to atone for, and nothing for which they should be penalized. Hell would freeze over before he gave any help to those who wished unwell on BPPD. Convinced as such, he quickly and succinctly sent the email directly into his trash bin. Detective Desarian pulled her challenger into a spot as far away from the entrance of the Vallarta supermarket as she could. She had hit the freeway and made a direct line to the location upon leaving the station after her frank talk with Captain Moore. Having absolutely no time to work with the care and craft that she usually employed, she was forced to chase any and every hunch in hopes that luck might be on her side and she would be able to wrap up enough of her case to perhaps convince the higher-ups that she should continue her investigation. One of these long-shot hunches had come back from when she had entered Lago's safe house a few days back. For the most part, the pad was as spotless and sterile as a model home. It was so clean that Dilly remembered being tipped off right away to its function as an emergency safe house. However, there were some slight irregularities that came across her eyes. One of these were the grocery bags from the Vallarta Market, which was located about seven miles from the house. Most people do their grocery shopping closer than that, and although it was an odd irregularity, it stood out nonetheless. She entered the market and decided to make a quick scan of the entirety before inquiring. Being more of a whole foods type of consumer, she would definitely need a little quick research before understanding how this market ran and how she could exploit any connections to the big gangs in Bowman Park. After a quick scan, she decided to get to work. She found that the easiest way to spark conversation was to hit up the massive butcher counter, place her order, and then slowly work her way into deeper questioning. Fortunately for her, her beauty more than made up for her poor Spanish, and she found the attending butcher very forthcoming. Dilly walked away from the counter with both prime cuts of animal and the tip that assistant manager Diego Mujero had previously been spotted bringing in some rather harsh-looking gentlemen, who were definitely not employees of this market, into his office. The detective made her way to the front and found an associate to ask for Diego. She knew her luck was changing when the young woman told her that he was busy. Clearly, she had been instructed to wave off anyone in direct violation of general customer service practices. It by all means appeared that Diego thought himself a big shot no doubt because of his connections within the gang Underworld. All she had to do was camp outside the office, and when the Cretan emerged, flash her badge and began the interrogation. About ten minutes later, the assistant manager exited the office. The grossly overweight man made sure to lock the door behind him, turned his protruding gut toward the produce department, and began quite literally throwing his weight around to his destination. Dillion nearly began salivating at such a pathetic target. She would have to be careful not to crush him into dust in the ensuing discussion. The detective made her way right into Diego's path and began. You must be Mr. Mujero. The fat man looked down at her with disgust for having interrupted his work. Once more in breach of basic customer service etiquette, he responded, And you are? Dilly happily lifted the hem of her shirt, just enough to reveal the star on her hip. Detective Sergeant Dilly Desarian, and we need to talk. Realizing that the jig was indeed up, Diego took a big gulp down his massive throat and led the detective into his office. Back in her challenger and halfway to the Baldwin Park Police Station, Dilly had her radio blasting as her smile shined bright with delight. The fat man had been swimming in sweat by the time they grabbed their seats in the makeshift interrogation room. It took her about 30 seconds to get him to explain his connections with Lago and the park addresses. Apparently, Diego's involvement was in skimming alcohol stock from his store books and selling them to Lago's boys to flip to local bars. He would falsify the records with a case or two less than what was stocked, and every week, a Trese would come pull up in a truck and pick up the surplus. Diego got cash for his efforts, and more importantly, the bragging rights of being a go-to for one of the most powerful gangs in the city. Dilly assumed Lago never imagined Diego would get pressured by the expedient way in which his guy folded. Yet, here they were, and the all-powerful assistant manager was singing like a canary. He told her that Lago believed that Garza was moving in on Verde ASAP, tonight, in fact. He wasn't privy to details, but there were hits to be made. This was due to the revelation that Garza's dealer was the one Girardi had picked up on the afternoon Dilly arrived. Apparently, Verde had given him the tip in hopes of lightening Garza's pockets before the war broke out. He told her that everyone in the city knew she was in town, and that Girardi was absolutely going to be behind bars before they could blink, due to his massive involvement in the gang cog machine. This was the only reason that Garza was keeping his soldiers off the lieutenant. Otherwise, he would have no qualms about silencing both him and Verde. The reality was, if you wanted your set to climb up that hierarchy, the time to start pulling out your big guns was now. Securing this tidal wave of information, Dilly cut the man loose and decided to take her news right to BPPD. She had not taken the idea of Girardi being in the sights of Garza lightly, and corrupt or not, she was going to do everything to let him have his day in court. He may act like a gangster and surround himself with them, but he would be punished like a cop. Speeding down the freeway, Dilly made the exit and began the final phase of her trip. As she began thinking about how she would approach the topic, Being that one of their own had just been killed, her phone buzzed. Mm. She quickly peeked at the screen and saw that it was an email from Gabe, the police aide. As carefully as she could, she opened the email while keeping her attention on the road, and just as she scanned the words, Come Pick Up and Victor Garza file, she heard a siren behind her. In her rearview mirror, she saw the flashing lights coming from the grill of a garish Chevy Suburban. There was only one agency who used those in the area, and it was the last one she wanted to see at such a crucial time in the case. She pulled over, and sure enough, Agent Culver hopped out of the SUV and scurried his way to her driver's side window. Dilly kept her head forward as the annoyance approached and began his cheerful joking about how fast she was driving. Noticing that not only was Dilly not enjoying the banter, but not responding at all, Culver reached his hand in the car to playfully wave it in front of her face. Get your hand out of my car, Dilly snapped. Good. You're awake. Oh my god, what do you want? I'm right in the middle of something. You're not headed to BP Police Station, are you? I'm heading that way myself. At the illusion, Dilly turned to meet the special agent's eyes with her DNG-covered gaze. Culver may have been a thorn in her side, but at least he genuinely cared about her feelings toward the case. That look of cringe mixed with empathy meant one thing and one thing only the FBI had officially made the decision to seize her case. That was What Did You Do? The fourth part of the Bad Boys of Bowen Park PD. Hope you enjoyed it. Obviously things getting even more interesting and make sure you turn in next week because a lot of rules are gonna have to be broken. All bets are off. Some people aren't even carrying their badges right now, but they have to find McGill's killer. They're going to have to stop this gang war and wrap everything up. And Dilly's going to have to decide which one she's going to prioritize. So make sure you're subscribed, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you can find podcasts. Please keep sharing, post on social media. And as always, thank you so much for listening.